welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast. Episode 37, Imperial Projects, in which Sanusaret I must fund his many monumental works by expanding Egypt's territory and gaining rich resources. From 1972 to 1954 BCE, Egypt was a hive of building activity. Sinusaret I's construction projects rose steadily over the first decades of his reign, enhancing the splendour of the king and his ancestors. These monuments, like the White Chapel of episode 36, have survived in fragmentary pieces, giving us a sense of the architectural achievements wrought by his government. But building projects don't enact themselves. They need labourers, overseers, architects, scribes and officials to manage the thousands of small jobs which lead to great achievements. In this point, Sinusaret is fortunate to have inherited the legacy of Montuhotep II, whose reforms of the state administration had really provided the groundwork for many of the 12th dynasty's architectural achievements. Thanks to Montuhotep and his fellow 11th dynasty rulers, Sinusaret was blessed with a power structure that was totally obedient to the king. Regions were governed by local overseers, and while some of these would become hereditary in future reigns, at this exact moment, Egypt was blessed with a strong, centralised governing apparatus that could be used by Sinusaret for any purpose he desired. The strength of this system had already given birth to the conquest of Lower Nubia, and the establishment of the 13 river fortresses on the Nile's west bank. Now, it allowed Sinusaret to pour resources into the construction of temples. We are fortunate to have a straightforward record detailing how the king went about proclaiming such a project, thanks to the preservation of a text known today as the Berlin Leather Roll, for obvious reasons. The Berlin Leather Roll is one of the earliest examples of what is known in Egyptology as the Koenig's Novel, or King's Novel. The basic idea is that a text records the king, in his court, deciding what to do in order to properly serve the gods and Ma'at. Quote, the king appeared with the double crown, and a sitting took place in the hall. It was a consultation with his followers, the friends of the palace and the officials of the private chambers, with commands for their hearing. The king said, See, my majesty is planning works, thinking of an excellent deed for his legacy. I will make a monument and lay down decrees for Ra Horakti, as he bore me to do what should be done for him. He placed me as shepherd of this land. And the friends of the palace said to their god, O sovereign, whatever is to happen, that is your plan. It is noble to look to tomorrow as something excellent for one's lifetime. Great are you as you make monuments in Heliopolis, the sanctuary of the gods, before your father, the lord of the great mansion, Atum Re. End quote. The basic principle is pretty clear. When the king developed an idea, it was presented to the court as a project designed to serve the god and ensure the king's legacy. This little snippet of text, such as it is, must have been repeated dozens of times throughout the reign of Senusaret, as he progressively expanded the number of building projects underway. 
It also reflects the centralization of power in the king's hands after the first intermediate period. That process, begun by Montuhotep, was now complete, and Sinusaret benefited from it immensely. The power of the king and the strength of his court is reflected in a greater sense of artistic and cultural unity up and down the Nile Valley. Pottery, for instance, became more consistent between various regions, while in the late First Intermediate Period and Eleventh Dynasty, it had differed substantially between the North and the South. For archaeologists working from material remains, it is the reign of Senusaret that marks the true beginning of the Middle Kingdom. They mean this in the sense that Senusaret's reign was the first to show no traces of the First Intermediate Period, but I personally hold to the view that Amenemhat's move from Thebes to Ichitawi, and the proclamation of a Renaissance, or Wichem Mesut, is when the Middle Kingdom really begins. Both arguments, I think, are essentially valid, and neither one really tells the whole story. It really just depends whether you count political unity, or cultural unity, to be the best marker for a new era. Either one works, and neither one really explains the full spectrum. So, go with what you like. Either way, the reign of Sinusaret is an immensely important time for the Middle Kingdom as a concept. In year three, during the co-regency with Amenemhat, Sinusaret had commissioned work at Heliopolis. In year 10, the first year of his sole reign, the king had commissioned his pyramid. By year 20, work on the first two projects had proceeded far enough along that he could open another major project, this time at Abydos. Although only the foundations of the temple survive today, the Abydos temple of Senusaret I seems to have been a complete remodeling of the existing temple. In this sense, it was similar to the work conducted at Heliopolis, at Karnak, and at Elephantine, where older sanctuaries were replaced with new stone complexes commissioned by the king. So, by 1950 BCE, around year 22, Sinusaret's reign had begun in earnest in terms of his architectural achievements. Up and down the Nile Valley, cult centres were embellished or expanded, Stone temples replaced earlier, more modest constructions, and some complexes, like the Temple of Karnak, were begun in earnest during this period. Over time, these would expand into some of Egypt's mightiest and most enduring monuments. During this period, there was, at any one time, construction work occurring in about five or six major cult centres, thirteen fortresses, a pyramid at Lisht, and the royal residential city of Ichitawi, which had been started by Amenemhat I. And then, when you include smaller cult centres, there is evidence for Senusaret's projects in no less than 35 different communities throughout Egypt. How do you fund a project like that? In many ways, it's more difficult than a pyramid. A pyramid is one monument, requiring one workforce. But Senusaret's building program extended from the delta down to the second cataract of the Nile. Providing food was no problem, the long drought of the Old Kingdom was now a thing of memory, and Senusaret's reign is generally regarded as a period of agricultural stability. 
But finding stone and construction materials was going to require serious planning and organisation. And the more splendid temples needed more than building masonry. They needed higher quality stone like granite for statues, and gold for decoration. Two of these items could be found in Nubia. So, it was off to Nubia that the king went. In approximately 1954 BCE, the 18th year of his reign, the king's army went to war for the second time. The first had been the mighty push in the 9th and 10th year of Amenemhat I, an epic campaign that laid the first foundations of an Egyptian empire south of Elephantine. This new campaign did not extend Egyptian territory any further than the previous one had, but it did advance further southward in order to secure and protect what had already been taken. Sinusaret himself may have actually been present on this campaign, following up on the work he undertook in year 9 and 10, and the campaign into Libya he had been leading when his father died. Sinusaret's fondness for military campaigns and leading in person seems to be implied by these first two works, and it's possible that he actually did go south. Two inscriptions in non-royal tombs of Egypt record the event, and a stela set up by the overseer of the granary named Montuhotep, no relation to the 11th dynasty, recorded the event as well. So we are unusually well informed about the dating and truthful aspects of this campaign. Sinusaret pushed his soldiers far to the south of Elephantine, even past the second cataract. The second cataract, which is not far south of modern-day Abu Simbel, formed the southern limit of Egyptian control. It butted up against the Nubian kingdom of Kerma, which had developed a small state and distinct culture over the course of the late Old Kingdom and First Intermediate period. For Egyptians working and living north of the Second Cataract, this kingdom was far closer than Sinusaret's residence at Ichtawi. Protection needed to be localised, and this may have been one of the secondary reasons for Sinusaret's second campaign. By pushing into Kerman territory, Sinusaret increased the general buffer zone between the Nubians and the 13 fortresses under construction south of Elephantine. At the same time, he was able to add another victory to his political prestige, and probably a lot of loot from raided Nubian settlements. The victory was recorded in a proclamation at Buhen, a major fortress built within this area. And that is, well, everything we know. Anticlimactic, perhaps, but the construction of the Aswan Dam means that the lower Egyptian fortresses, including Buhen, are now covered by the waters of Lake Nasser. So any more information about the region and its history in this period can only be achieved by underwater archaeology. At the moment, no such project is underway. So for now, this is all we know. But when the campaign was completed, the real work could begin. Specifically, the mining of that eternally sought resource, gold. Just to the north of the second cataract is an old riverbed known today as the Wadi Halfa. Following the Wadi Halfa led the soldiers into the foothills of the eastern desert, which served the Egyptians for centuries as one of the most important sources of gold in the entire region. 
The quest for gold is commonly held as one of the primary reasons for the Egyptians to establish a permanent presence in Lower Nubia. It also helps to explain why they set their southern boundary at the second cataract, just to the south of Wadi Halfa. Indeed, the entire region between Elephantine and the second cataract was loaded with valuable mineral resources. South of Aswan, at Wadi al-Hudi, copper was exploited in large quantities, and quarries at the first cataract provided red granite that would find its way into the temples being built in Egypt itself. All of that gold, alabaster, granite, and construction stone was shipped downriver to Thebes, Abydos, Koptos, Ichtawi, Heliopolis, and Memphis. Here, the stone and gold adorned the various temples being erected, and took the form of obelisks and stelae, which recorded the king's splendour and his contributions to the divine sanctuaries. If empires are built for splendour, they are sustained by wealth. Sinusaret's empire in Nubia was the first step in a generations-long process that would see Egypt gain the very highest of imperial power. As an exercise in conquest and exploitation, the 12th dynasty surpassed even the heights of the Old Kingdom. By establishing the fortresses in Lower Nubia, the Egyptians could maintain a strong, centralised control over the region and its population. And who was this population who shared the territory with the fortresses? Well, sandwiched between Egypt and Kerma was a middle group, who moved primarily between the first and second cataracts of the Nile. These lower Nubians, known in archaeological circles as the Sea Group, were primarily semi-nomadic pastoralists. What this means is that their lifestyle was built around raising herds of cattle. Sea Group burials show high usage of leather from cows, and their housing was mostly impermanent suggesting they moved from region to region with their herds. This kind of group was quite suitable to the Egyptians living in lower Nubian fortresses. In exchange for cereals, beer, and oils, the Egyptians could gain access to perishable items like milk and meat, and more durable items like leather. Pretty useful for a society that doesn't have access to refrigeration, and couldn't store dairy or meat as effectively as grain. So that is the basic essence of how Senusaret's army in Lower Egypt was fed and equipped. Leather from local sea group tribes could be used for belts, or slings, or shield coverings. Meat and milk kept the soldiers nourished, and a pastoral population were less of a threat to the fortresses, which could only be taken by a sustained military effort. Pretty convenient, all things considered. Beyond the region of Lower Nubia, the king's soldiers and labourers spread throughout the deserts, journeying into the Wadi Hammamat no less than three times. These expeditions could be for statuary or precious stones like amethyst, and could reach epic proportions. The last expedition to Wadi Hammamat during Senusaret's reign, which took place in about 1934 BCE, the 38th year of his reign, an expedition of 17,000 people journeyed into the eastern desert. In a curious coincidence, Senusaret's expedition in year 38 was also led by a man named Ameni, 
or Amenemhat. Just like the expedition of Nebtawi raid Montuhotep IV years earlier. The expedition of Ameni included 17,000 people, of which 20 were provincial overseers or governors, 30 were companions of the king, and 1,000 were soldiers, including 300 drawn from the old capital of Thebes. The rest were anonymous peasants and probably included a significant number of captives taken from Lower Nubia during Sinusaret's earlier campaign. Such an expedition should give you a sense of how prosperous the kingdom was during the early 12th dynasty. Agriculture was flourishing, trade was booming thanks to the conquest of Nubia, and the population was large enough to support no less than 35 construction projects throughout the Nile Valley. Such prosperity must have seemed to the Egyptians to be the highest blessing from the gods. In fact, by the time the new kingdom rolled around some 400 years later, Sinusaret was still being worshipped as a god in his own right. A fitting legacy indeed for a ruler who had done more than any other to proclaim and assert the splendour and power of the Egyptian kingship which had suffered so badly in the long intermediate period. But Sinusaret did not make the mistake of glorifying only himself. A small statue erected in the Sinai Peninsula shows that Sinusaret dispatched an expedition here at some point during his reign. Fortunately, part of this statue has survived today. It shows the great 4th dynasty king Sneferu seated before offerings, with an inscription dating it to the reign of Sinusaret I. Such a dedication was an elegant way for Sinusaret to strengthen the link between the 12th dynasty and Sneferu, a link that had been created by Amenemhat I when he commissioned the prophecy of Nefertiti, which we discussed in episode 32. Such ancestor worship seems to have been a prominent feature of the 12th dynasty, revealing an overriding concern with legitimacy and stability in royal lineage. This is probably the reason why Amenemhat had established the co-regency with Sinusaret, and why, when it came time for him to find his own successor, Sinusaret did the same. Forty-two years after taking the throne, Sinusaret was reaching the end of his life. Now, it was time to appoint a successor. Sinusaret's wife, Neferu, had been at the king's side for many years, and had borne him at least one daughter, possibly more, and a son named Ameni. This son was appointed in year 42, as co-regent of Sinusaret I, with the throne name Nubkaure Amenemhat II. The co-regency between Sinusaret I and Amenemhat II was unremarkable, and lasted for just three years. In this time, the only major event was an inspection of the lower Egyptian fortresses, conducted and recorded by an officer named Hapu. A testament to Sinusaret's ongoing preoccupation with the south, Hapu's inspection was an appropriate capstone to a reign that had seen Egyptian power expand far beyond its old kingdom limits. Sinusaret could look back on his reign with a sense of pride and accomplishment. 
For most of his life, he had served as protector of Ma'at and ruler of Upper and Lower Egypt. But all good things must end. And finally, Sennusaret I passed from the world of the living and united with Osiris in the west. He was approximately 70 years old and had been king of Egypt for 45 years. The story of Sennusaret I has taken more episodes to tell than any other king of Egypt so far. Even the long, long, long reign of Pepi II did not take so long, simply because the wealth of information that survives from the early Middle Kingdom far outstrips even the heights of the old. Fortunately, the Middle Kingdom will continue to dominate our narrative for a long time. It is a period of cultural flourishing, and there are a great many stories to be told. In the meantime, it is time for Amenemhat II to take the throne. <laughs>